Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Thank you very much, Kat, for that delightful introduction. I'm going to grab um, And thank you to the organizers uh, for bringing me out here. And thank you to all of you for coming. Um, this is meant to be uh, an informal mm-hmm. talk. And so I'm going to try to keep... Um, the theoretical lingo down to minimum. And I hope you'll ask questions if you um, need some elucidation. I also, I'm going to move at a clip. I have a large set of slides to get through um, and I want to get through them all. Um, it's a, a, maybe a somewhat touristic approach, but the uh, the discussion unfolds in three parts. It's related to a project that I am involved in currently, which is an interesting project, a kind of beta testing project where I'm working through the affordances of a database that is already built um, in terms of how it can be deployed for Shakespeare's purposes um, or for the purposes of remediating Shakespeare. Uh, And I think that's actually quite an interesting way of of thinking through um, the digital and where it is now in scholarly and in public work. Okay, so um, there's not much to flag here except maybe uh, the coat of arms um, and the motto, uh, non sans droit, um, which means not without right which I am intentionally playing with um, in my title. Um, So the qualms you'll see will come up in several registers right away. So the first part of this talk has to do with the application of digital tools in a very sort of pragmatic, unsophisticated way um, within my own classroom. So I teach a Shakespeare lecture at the University of Chicago. Um, As is the case in many institutions, this course is broken down into two quarters, One is comedies and histories, the other is tragedies and romances. So while teaching the tragedies and romances, um, my class and I had a collective thought concept about the totality of Shakespeare tragedy that we wanted to test out. And this is it. Okay, Um, so our observation that a repeated feature of Shakespearean tragedy is that there's some kind of upheaval at the level of character or outlook or the external world that's indexed by a shaking action, quite literally a shaking action. This is my representation of an earthquake on the right. So here are a few indexical quotations um, from Hamlet, right? What may this mean that thou dead course again in complete steel revisits thus the glimpses of the moon making night hideous and we fools of nature so horridly to shake our disposition with thoughts beyond the reach of our souls. From Cassius and Julius Caesar, and after this, let Caesar uh, seat him sure, for we will shake him, or worse days ensure, right? This is the um, anticipation of the uh, assassination. From King Lear, this is Gloucester, oh, you mighty gods, this world I do renounce, and in your sights, shake patiently my great affliction off. And from Coriolanus Comenius, He'll shake your room about your ears. You get the sort of various um, degrees of literalness with which the term is being invoked. Um, But we were noticing its repetition and noticing its sort of um, almost kinesthetic necessity uh, in tragic contexts. So we ran a very simple analysis, which is always very simple in the context of the Shakespeare corpus because it's limited and it's a very beautifully curated data set. So it's easy to run searches on. This is just a lexical finding to return to a term that came up in the context of Dan Shores' 
um, presentation today. So I was looking for synonyms. I was looking for the word itself. And as you'll see, there's a reason for that. These are the plays in, um, they're clustered by genre, and then within the genre, they're just alphabetical. And you can see um, <laughs> what's not on here are the poems. I'll show them, I'll show you them in a minute. But uh, every play is represented, including, oddly enough, even um, Sir Thomas More that Shakespeare only has a tiny little piece of that he wrote. It's a collaborative play that we have in manuscript. And it's the only place where we can see Shakespeare's hand actually writing drama. Um, and in some cases, particularly in the context of tragedy, uh, just a very high use. There's a real outlier is Two Noble Kinsmen, <laughs> which is interesting in all kinds of ways. This is um, sort of symptomatic of the problem that I want to discuss today, which is it's a small data set, it's a small set of plays, it's a not a huge number of instances of words, and yet I see a, a, a graph like this and I am off to the races, right? I have dozens of things I want to conjecture um, about the meaningfulness of this spread. And genre is one of the ways, of course, of attaching meaning to um, these iterations. And happily enough, <laughs> a lot of my sense of how shake works is that it's roughly congruous with the unit of measurement that we use to measure earthquakes, right? But the higher you go, the higher the number of shakes, the shakier the work, the more it unsettles. Um, the natural norms or the theological norms, the philosophical norms, even the sort of the, the um, human existential norms uh, of the play. Um, all right, and here is the, uh, the, a larger corpus. Um, so there aren't any gaps here. So you get actually, I think there are 41 things indexed here, which is the plays and the folio plus two noble kinsmen plus the poetry. Um, Everything is here except passionate pilgrims. So that is to say, Shake shows up in every single thing that Shakespeare has his hand in. All right, and this is um, find, these are findings drawn from a database that we have at the University of Chicago, um, which is the textual optics called the Textual Optics Lab, and it's directed by Hoyt Long, um, and it's freely accessible. So if you want to go online and play with it. What they've done is digested all of the text that we have transcribed from EBO, Early English Books Online. For those of you who are oriented to early modern literature, this is our go-to database for the full text of everything written in English um, in England from the dawn of print until the turn of the 18th century. So this particular database lists word frequency um, in the measured against other works, uh, oops, within the totality of the Ebo corpus, and the most shaky work, according to Textual Optics Lab, is in fact the first folio, um, which I thought was pretty exciting. Um, right, and you can see here that I've include I've I've written you know this is the case even though the folio doesn't include the poetry of Shakespeare and it doesn't include that amazing outlier of Two Noble Kinsmen, <laughs> which has a lot of shaking in it, eleven shakes. Um, and then I've also added that it is satisfying to me that Calvin's sermons would be another instance of high shakiness, right? Unsurprisingly, the Book of Physic, um, which is indexing shaking as a symptom of a malady, right? A palsy um, is up there too. And then a thesaurus will give you lots of iterations of words um, and synonyms. Uh, so there we go. So why, what, what are my expectations then? What, what leaps of, of analysis do I jump to? Um, why this predilection for shake? So my thought, and this is, and I'm setting myself up, I should say, as a kind of straw man in this argument. So it's a thought that I'm, I'm fairly skeptical about, but I'm confessing to anyway. 
my thought is how interesting that Shake shows up, which is, of course, a piece of Shakespeare's own name. It's also a uh, a name that is played on by the few attestations we have of Shakespeare in his own moment by rival poets or coeval poets. So this is a very famous piece of text from, uh, from Robert Greene that describes Shakespeare as an upstart crow and mocks his name by saying um, he is uh, an absolute Johannes factotum in his own conceit, the only shake scene in a country. And then the other site in which I found shake as a reference to Shakespeare being punned on is in a, a series of plays called the Parnassus Plays, which are a really delightful and hilarious series of plays um, that describe the life of college students, play-loving college students, basically leisure-loving, work-hating, study-hating college students um, at the very turn of the century. And Shakespeare plays a pretty interesting uh, starring role in the leisure and laziness um, of these students. And so uh, Shakespeare comes up in this context um, as a model of dramatic success, as a path to follow, um, as a nimble swagger with a goose quill, perhaps. It's hard in these cases to fully um, uh, de-anonymize the references inside the play. In other words, there's no actual name dropping, there's punning and there's illusion, but we have to just sort of basically figure out from the panoply of playwrights in the period who corresponds to which character or what description. This is me doing my best job. Um, but one of the things that gets said here, I'll shake your heart upon my versus point, rip out his guts with rhyme, my rhyming poignard, right? This seems to be a good description um, of shake and spear. Um, and so here is me hypothesizing that Shakespeare signs his plays with a shake in every play um, as a way of uh, insisting upon the name that is taken and mocked um, or played with, right, as, um, as fodder for, uh, for rivalry and, um, and insults of the sort that we expect from this period. Now, this isn't the sort of claim that I would make in an essay. <laughs> I just want to say this is the kind of thought that enters my head when I see this kind of um, accumulation of, of uh, iterations. Um, and it's this pattern of thought that I'm fairly interested in talking about today. Um, I did some quick comparisons. So the folio, Shakespeare's folio, which is the compilation that was published um, quite close to his, uh, his date of death, uh, that, uh, as, that publishes in one work as many of the plays were readily available as possible, um, losing fairly few, it would seem. It, it's quite an anomalous thing. The only precedent that we have that's fully dramatic is Johnson's um, folio. Uh, Johnson's folio, as you see, has paltry few shakes, which absolutely corresponds with my assessment of Johnson and how divergent he is from Shakespeare. He's also a very comic playwright. He doesn't write very many tragedies, so that might have something to do with it, too. The Beaumont and Fletcher folio, this is an immediate moment where I sort of had to come to terms with maybe my statistical um, fallacies, because the Textual Optics Lab, it turns out, does not have the full transcription of the Beaumont and Fletcher folio. So when I gave you that list of the most shaky works, right? Well, in fact, in terms of just sheer numbers, this book has more. Um, now, uh, averaged out over the totality of plays, 
Shakespeare still has more instances per play. Um, and I think he has uh, an obligatory instance across all works, except for that one poem. But still. Um, all right. So one thing I'll say immediately is the unequal representation of Shakespeare in digital corpora, um, meaning that is to say the heavy weight that's placed on, uh, on offering up very high quality uh, corpora of Shakespeare, makes it easy to make strong claims about Shakespeare. Um, and, and hence the, the easy temptation for me to do so and to jump to this sort of assumption, right? That Shakespeare's basically Hitchcock, dropping his profile into his work. Um, wouldn't that be fabulous? Um, these are some of my favorite instances. Uh, it's probably no accident that I'm also a fan of Hitchcock. Um, all right, and now here is me trying to work against my own instinct to make these kinds of authorial <coughs> signature claims. Um, so one of the one of those sort of bracing reminders of why this might be a dirty business to get into is the mockery that Johnson <laughs> makes of the kind of coat of arms chasing um, that that Shakespeare undertakes. So he actually writes a character who is another quasi parody of Shakespeare, a country bumpkin who buys his own family crest. That's a, a rendering um, uh, by a scholar of what that crest would have looked like. It gets described in the play. It's a bear without a head. As you can see, it's not super glorifying um, for, for the family. Um, and the motto uh, for that family's, for Salgado's family is not, not without mustard, um, which is quite a nice play um, on uh, nonsense draw. And this is, in fact, the heraldry college's sketch of, of Shakespeare's own um, coat of arms. And I mean, there are some absurdities with it, right? The bird that holds the spear by the foot is not a terribly plausible um, phenomenon. You can see how it's opening the door. Um, the same mockery, uh, it seems to me, of the, at least of the fetishization of the author or the fetishization of the sign of the author, shows up in the Parnassus plays where you have a, a particularly underachieving student um, mooning over Shakespeare's poetry um, and promising to sleep with Venus Adonis under his pillow, but also saying, oh, sweet Mr. Shakespeare, I'll have his picture in my study at the court. This fixation on the visual rather than the literary is a sign, right, of a kind of misdirected interest. And so, um, so what I would say to sort of exonerate myself for leaping to the, um, into the same orientation that Johnson, for instance, mocks, is that this orientation to the authorial signature, to the fingerprint of the author, to the biographical, this is a feature of, uh, of Shakespeare's documentation. And Shakespeare's documentation has largely happened through the dramatic corpus because we don't have very much that's very rich or interesting outside of the dramatic corpus that attests to him, that's written by him, right, or that looks at all biographical. Um, and so, uh, you know, since uh, Capel's origins story, uh, which is a story that gets rehearsed actually in all the anthologies of, of Shakespeare editions, right? There's this longing for the life of Shakespeare that could accompany the plays and sort of decipher them. Um, and as recently, and much more recently in 2015, Peter Kerwin writes, and I think the language here is really helpful, um, that, that the object of attribution when it comes to Shakespeare studies is, is uh, rhetorically physical and embodied authorial presence encoded within a text couched in the language used by early modern authors themselves, most famously in Thomas Haywood's claim in the English Traveler to have had an entire hand or at least a main finger in 220 plays, right? The sense that the, the bodily presence is, is right there and can be tracked like fingerprint 
um, is a big part of the way in which we conceptualize the signature of the author. I point to here, this is something Kat alluded to in her introduction to me. I've worked a fair amount on Shakespeare forgeries. One of the most interesting and amusing is William Henry Ireland's forgeries. He claimed to have found a huge pile of attesting biographical documents in a chest in a lawyer's office. And he was working as a, as a clerk at the moment. And he first brought forward only a modest few documents, but he, in order to make them look authentic, signed them with a seal that he found in the, in the law office, which happened to have this weird thing on it, a quintain. Now, a quintain is something that you practice, you do jousting practice against. So it's something you literally would shake a spear at. And the editors, not Malone, but the rest of the editors of the period who took a look at this, basically genuflected before the documents and said, these are absolutely the truth of the matter and sent Ireland back. And he came back with hundreds, hundreds of items, including um, a fully self-invented play called Vortigern and Rowena, which is truly, truly terrible, um, that uh, was published and venerated and added into the canon before it was by Malone soundly debunked. Um, so the search for the trace, right, is even part of this sort of experience of forging or um, inauthentically manufacturing that history. This is the title uh, of the papers that, um, that Ireland discovered when they were first published before they were debunked. Under the hand and seal of Shakespeare seems important. And then I'll also just say, this is obviously moving into a different register, but in some casual archaeology that happened in Stratford, um, not that long ago, I think it was within 100 years that they found this particular artifact, a signet ring was found, which as you can see has an entwined W and S on it. Um, and it immediately went to the front of the collection, right, as a star object, clearly the sign of the hand and finger of Shakespeare. Um, and I just want to point out here, too, um, and here I'm calling from two separate spaces, but in a book on naming in the period, William, along with John and Thomas, is one of the top three boys' name, um, you know, for, for roughly 100 years, um, so W as a first initial is not particularly rare. S was then and is now the most common first initial in English names. WS as an incidence of a coupled pair is much higher than the median, right? You can find it here. Um, the, this has been statistically crunched, not for the purposes of, of identifying the probability of the ring, but for in another um, pursuit. Um, so you can see that it's in fact very possible that this item had has never been on the finger of William Shakespeare, um, notwithstanding uh, the role that it's been given. So this that was part one, right? Part one is really a sort of confession to how easy it is to use digital tools like the Ebo Corpus, um, like the uh, online open source concordance, like the Folger digital text, to look for that biographical trace, right? And to imagine that what will make it important as a discovery will be the traction that it has within this kind of biographical register. My challenge then, and this was a challenge that I sort of put upon myself when I was asked to join this project, is so how do you build a project about Shakespeare, a digital Shakespeare project, um, that pushes back against those impulses and makes itself sort of less amenable to these uses that, I mean, while fun, and I have to say, you know, I'm totally charmed. I continue to be totally charmed by my own reading. Um, they are unsubstantiable, right? And therefore, um, you know, they are uh, circuitous patterns of thought that can energize us and entertain us as scholars, but they're, they're not really advancing anything beyond claims for exception, beyond, you know, personifications of the bard that feel very 19th century to me. 
Um, so can Shakespeare stop being st stop being the star of the database, particularly in the case that you have a database that's actually named for him, <laughs> that is about his work, which is what I was sort of faced with. So as I say here, um, this became a pressing question for me when I was asked to join. It was, it was more or less required to join the, um, the CEDAR project, which is a project that or originated on the Oriental Institute. It's a database uh, that's a repository for texts that are extraordinarily hard to interpret at the level of the letter or even at the letter of the diacritical mark. This is a repository for uh, very ancient texts found in their first iteration that have to be read by a series of scholars in order to, for, their, for any consensus to emerge about what is being said on just on the level of the le letter or the level of the word. It's a very... Um, it, it, it's a very power-hungry database. It requires a huge servers. It runs off the supercomputers that we have, the supercomputer that we have at the University of Chicago. Um, but it was, uh, it was put forward to me that it would be interesting to look at how this database would work with texts that don't have the same peculiarities and the same difficulties attached to them. Does it have winning features, in other words, that would make the remediation of other authors more interesting, more valuable? Could it make discoveries? Um, so this is what I tried to, to think through. On the bottom here, you can see a piece of the original disposition of the very beginning of Genesis 1, right? So the two streams that were, um, that were undertaken simultaneous to Shakespeare one was on the Epic of Gilgamesh, the other is on um, the Hebrew Bible, Genesis chapters. First, it was going to be 1 through 11. First, it was going to be all of Genesis. Then it became Genesis 1 through 11. Now it's Genesis 1 through 9. We'll see. They're still on the first line of the first verse, and they've been put inputting data for about a year. Um, so my, my orientation to how I would try to back out of this biographical dilemma is partly drawn from language that um, Catherine Bode offered in a recent little fracas over the digital humanities that came out in Critical Inquiry, where she championed uh, philological, curatorial, and media archaeological approaches to digital collections. That is my orientation. I'm a performance scholar by disposition. I'm interested in the sort of performatic, qual performatic qualities of data, which is to say the ways in which they don't function empirically, the ways in which they are attached to all kinds of subjective processes. Um, so uh, I put her language up there as a way of describing, um, in a concise way, my own. Um, but the project still started as a digital variorum. So a variorum, for those of you who um, don't uh, avail yourselves of one of these, um, a variorum is an addition that offers up uh, textual variants in a, in a richly documented way most of all, it offers uh, a history of editorial efforts to solve and resolve the text. So it's a place that you go to to look for the history of editorial <laughs> interventions where you have discrepancy. In Shakespeare studies, this is one of the most orthodox examples of, uh, of discrepancy, where we have very different iterations of what um, comes at the same time in, this, in the play, right? So um, effectively, this we call this the same speech. It's clearly not the same speech across all three iterations. The terms we used to describe it have, have evolved and changed, although I won't necessarily always live by that evolved state. So this is what a page of, of uh, the, um, I think this is the second edition of Furnace's Variorum um, that I pulled. This is me just photographing the text out of the University of Chicago's library. You can see it has some signs of use somewhere. Um, attached to it, and I'm just indicating the sort of st stratigraphy of the text, what this looks like as a research object 
Um, as you'll see, right, as you can see on the top, you have the text itself. In the middle, right, I should actually use this thing um, if I knew where it was. Yeah, this middle zone, this is where you see the thing that looks the most sort of encoded, and that, that's where um, editors document using acronyms um, variants. Uh, so you see different Q and F usually indications, and then, um, and then down on the bottom, um, this is where we have uh, the editorial opinions. Um, and note the borrower's emphases and judgments. One of the things I like about books that have been used, right, is they show how the editorial disposition of the text shapes the use of the book. You see the user taking advice, looking at sources, attaching main text to, to source text, etc. Um, so this is a pretty bad schematic, but it'll have to do because I drew it um, of how a variorum roughly works, right? At the top of the pyramid or the top of the iceberg, you have this sort of small, tight, coherent text beneath it. In the case that you have a lot of textual variant, not always the case with Shakespeare, but sometimes very much the case with Shakespeare, you have this, uh, this whole array of texts that have to be drawn from in order to create a single version. Um, and underneath uh, what I've called struggle, or it could be called chaos, right? You have editorial commentary, and there you have consensus, but you have also a lot of dissensus. Um, and this is page one of four. Uh, this is very armed commentary on the line to be or not to be, right? This is always the thing that, that uh, when I show my students, even at the University of Chicago, they balk. Um, this is what you know if you're Shakespearean or not, depending on how much patience I think you have. Um, for reading through all of this commentary, I always find it delicious. It's always full of animosity. Um, they're always taking bites of each other, these editors, uh, but there's a lot of it. So this model, effectively, this sort of excavation, this pyramid system, the movement from coherent to chaotic, this is what I'm trying to disassemble, roughly, um, in imagining what the use of the, the, the Shakespeare stream would be in Cedar. And so that called for me to find a text that wouldn't demand that kind of representation, which meant, first of all, not doing Hamlet, which was the text that was first um, sort of foisted on me. Um, and I, I said, well, look, I'll do King John, Pericles, or Taming of the Shrew. I wanted to pick plays that have very awkward and unresolved relations to comparable texts. Um, so I settled on Shrew. I fought for Shrew because I think it's quite an interesting text to put alongside Genesis and Gilgamesh. Normally, taming is considered a, a secondary work, maybe a tertiary work in the Shakespeare canon. It's not a work of great seriousness. It's certainly not a tragedy. I want to make the claim that as a pattern of cultural inculcation, it's actually incredibly forceful, not on its own, right? But as a vehicle for a set of beliefs that are actually in the air that it's channeling. This is a thing that I uncovered as I have been working on this project. But, uh, but my first rationale for picking taming is that it exists in two forms that are uh, totally unreconcilable or irreconcilable. One is the, the anonymous quarto, the taming of a shrew. Uh, it was issued three times in 1594, 1596, 1607. No notable variations across those three quartos. And Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew, which came out for the first time in the folio, it's one of the plays that comes out only in the folio during, um, not during Shakespeare's lifetime, but close to it. Um, although there is a quarto that's released soon thereafter, interestingly enough. Um, and even though we know that uh, the Shakespeare's composition of Taming of the Shrew certainly didn't happen 
um, late in his career. It was, it was much more certainly an early comedy, but it may have absorbed uh, changes, uh, adjustments made by the company or by Shakespeare in the time from its original composition to the time that it was um, fixed in print in the folio. So just to be, just to repeat myself, because this is important, there's an anonymous play called The Taming of a Shrew. It has features that are similar. It has a very similar plot. It has a relation between main plot and subplot. It has an induction, and it also has an epilogue um, that seem very much like Taming of the Shrew. But it is not Taming of the Shrew. The characters are named different, differently. The, on the level of the line, things are quite different. In other words, these are not minor variations. Um, and roughly contemporaneous to it, probably just a little bit later, is Shakespeare's composition of Taming of the Shrew, the play that probably most of you have, have heard of in this room. Um, but over the course of editorial history, it had, been, it had been common to call the anonymous play a kind of um, bad quarto, right? Like Q1 Hamlet, for those of you who know the arguments around Hamlet that we're increasingly moving away from, um, you know, there was this belief that you get bad form texts because texts were stolen in a period before literary copyright. Um, you could have somebody who was a supernumerary in the company who overheard the play and performance sufficiently to put together a kind of mashed together version of the text and then could run to a printing house and sell it, for instance. That was a theory that had been, has long been um, in force around Q1 Hamlet. The same claim is made around uh, Q1, um, the, the quarto of Taming A Shrew, but increasingly it's been impossible to sustain that reading. That's just, it, there's no reason to believe one text is better or less evolved uh, than the other. And so this is an edition of Taming from uh, 1908, where you can see the editor trying desperately to wedge A Shrew into the gloss, these comments that I've highlighted on the bottom. Um, even though it's sort of a replication with a difference of the text uh, uh, above the line, it's a, a really peculiar and unsatisfying arrangement. So my uh, hunch as I was trying to compare these texts and think about how we would create a variorum around them um, is that we had to find a way of not setting up any kind of hierarchical arrangement, of disavowing that kind of pyramid, of not solidifying the text into one single thing, but actually using the size of the cedar stream to drop in that text, another text, it, every iteration, every quarto of Taming of Ashru, even if the differences were exceedingly minor. I wanted to make no decisions about what information was important or what information was unimportant. I wanted to basically maximize the capacity to compile without making a choice to arrange it vertically, right? With a sort of solid version on top and differences running below. But as I went about looking at the, the tissue of quotations, to use another phrase that, um, that, was, that was brought up today, uh, I, what, what became interesting when looking at both Taming of Ashru and Taming of Dishru is how much these plays are written out of um, phrases, lines, identifiable lines from other sources, proverbs that you hear circulated in other environments, but also actually direct quotations from plays. Kid and Marlowe show up, um, respectively, all over the place um, in those two plays. So we became very interested in how the play itself could be, instead of being a kind of um, imprimatur of genius, right, um, it could be its own archive of the culture where we could see sort of sewn together fragments from many texts, and I could attach those fragments back to their full textual entities. I had the space to make a database that would work on that principle. Um, so that's what we went ahead with initially. So the first thing I tried to do was sort of arrange that full panoply of texts 
um, not according to genre, not really making any kind of decision other than, is it present? Um, the second claim, which I'll get into as I go, uh, is how startlingly object-related the cultural messaging around wife-taming is um, in this play. So that led to its own set of discoveries. So here's me showing very quickly some of the popular forms that are embedded in Taming of the Shrew, the, the play that we know best, I would say. You can see here that I've highlighted what is italicized in this text and also prefaced by the, the um, direction singing, right? Where's the life that late I led, which Cole Porter wrote into a song in Kiss Me Kate. Um, that was the first line of a ballad that we don't have, that didn't get saved. Ballads were very ephemeral print forms in this period. Um, but it, it seems to bespeak the mourning of a bridegroom after giving away his freedom, right? Um, full of regret. This is a big trope uh, in marital humor, uh, then as now. Um, so here's another ballad. This is a ballad of the cruel shrew. There are lots of these, right? So even though ballads don't survive um, to anywhere near the full extent that, say, Shakespeare's corpus does, we have lots and lots of annotations of shrew ballads. Um, the curl shrew is a pretty good illustration. Also, I'll just point out the visuals, right? Ballads often have um, pictures at the center of them. They are as often, uh, I think, bought and used um, for their pictures as for their text. Sermons. Um, so we hear, this is in a, a moment of close, in close proximity to the last one, that, um, that Petruchio is upstage giving a sermon of continence to, to um, Katerina. Um, so a sermon is another form um, that has a lot to say about shrews and scolds and household um, arrangements. Um, in fact, the conduct book, which is generally written by a, a clerical figure in the period, is like a kind of extensive sermonizing on this particular theme. And it's all about the, the sort of social hierarchy of the family, right? The husband has had the wife taking her subordinate role beneath that position, but also servants in the household and where they belong in that hierarchy, etc. So this is a form, too, that is described in the text, but it's also invoked sort of thematically. It's performed. Um, this is another extremely popular uh, conduct book, which isn't sermonizing again on domestic themes. You can see on the top, um, particular duties of wives, particular duties of husbands. Um, and you can also see, I've paraphrased slightly here, but those duties are broken down in a way that aligns perfectly with, with Kate's final discussion of what women owe their husbands at the end of the play, the final speech that many feminist readers, even non-feminist readers, I think, take great objection to. Um, this is one very small index of a much bigger iceberg, right, which is a dramatic quotation. Um, we hear from Peter, who's a servant. He kills her in her own humor. This is uh, an evocation of a very common proverb in the period, proverb in the period, um, uh, to kill a wife with kindness or kill a woman with kindness. Um, woman Killed with Kindness is uh, Haywood's most popular play, which wasn't published until 1603 long after we think Shakespeare wrote Taming, but who knows when that line made its way into Shakespeare's play, right? Again, the play only stabilized when it came out in print in the folio. This citation of Proverbs and citations of the dramatic recycling of Proverbs is a big feature uh, that runs through the play. Here's the, um, here's the first page of the quarto. Um, and then another form that isn't directly cited but certainly evoked uh, in the work is the print that is <laughs> almost text-free, right? You have just those three lines of print on the bottom, but otherwise it's quite a rich engraving. This is an engraving 
on the subject of shrews, a New York's gift for uh, sorry, a New Year's gift for shrews from 1625. You can read the text straight. What happens to a man who marries a shrew? By the end of it, um, she's sent off to the devil, right? And you can see um, Saturday's exit right here. Um, so I raise this by way of saying the play isn't only recycling popular print, it's also print as text. It's recycling iconography that comes out in print form. And this is where I started to make a leap to a different kind of phenomenon that was being cited throughout the work, which is this, um, this strong presence of objects, objects that do a lot of, of a similar kind of, of um, domestic cultural messaging. So, beyond Prince, the play makes heavy use of objects onto which scold or shrew-related proverbs, jokes, and threats are often inscribed. You this is this famous scene of the beginning of Kate's domestication, beginning of the, the first scene of the fourth act, um, where Petruchio again and again performs outrage over some good or service that is being performed for him, says that it's terrible when it's good, throws things, and does so all in this very richly described domestic environment where the stuffs of the household come in for a lot of hard play. Right, um, so you see back here, uh, you have, I've, I've highlighted dresser, trenchers, and cups. These are all objects, domestic objects, household object, objects, onto which proverbs or domestic moralia were frequently inscribed. And I'm gonna show you some illustrations of this. So trencher is one of the best examples. There's actually a really good essay um, out uh, on the subject of trenchers in drama by a scholar whose last name is Yeoman. Um, it just came out recently, and it talks about the sort of scriptive force um, of banquet scenes, given that they are all, that we have to imagine them being sort of populated with these heavily inscribed objects. So what you can see here is a very classic image of a wife beating up her husband. She's holding a distaff, which is what she spins her will on, and he's trying to keep his head from being cudgeled. Um, this one comes from Germany, and it's a little bit earlier than Taming. This is Bruegel's participation in this tradition. These are 12 proverbs that he illustrated. Um, and put out in trencher form. Somebody collected them and put them into a more sort of fine art-looking environment. But in fact, they were household goods. They were meant to be actually exposed on a Welsh dresser. This is um, a piece of text, uh, a piece of ephemeral print that would have been published for lamination onto a trencher. So um, the way trenchers were used in the period, and I've mocked one up here in a not terribly um, well-scaled version, um, but the way they were used in the period is that you would put sweets at the end of the meal, fruit at the end of the meal in a trencher. Um, and when you're done, you turn it over and you would have a, a, a object like this, a piece of print like this, imaged on it, um, <laughs> which often had the words for a song or a round, right? They're very meta um, conceptual, right? So um, the roundness of the round is written into the round arrangement of the poetry on the plate. And people would sing some post-prandial song about festivating and wives and husbands. And, um, and sometimes they're raunchy, sometimes they're not, sometimes they're about the seasons, um, sometimes they're about uh, allegorical figures. Um, but this is roughly what they look like, right? And they even offer sort of pictures of their own domestic bus. You can see the people singing the round. Um, so the, the picture sort of teaches you, I guess, what to do with the object. So trenchers show up everywhere. Um, Right here, that, that, that's the language to that particular round. Um, and they're particularly heavily marked in this play where they get thrown uh, in that scene. And they are robustly inscribed with this kind of domestic messaging, um, right? And 
chanters and ballads often are printed by the same printing house. Uh, and so they have the same, um, they're produced by the same people and often consumed by the same people, very broadly. This is a comfort dish that works on the same principle, but instead of actually being laminated over with a piece of cheap print, um, it's directly inscribed, right? You can read the inscription, receive thy hap as fortune sendeth, but God it is that fortune lendeth. Wherefore, if you a shrew hast got, think to thyself, it is thy lot. Um, uh, there are a lot of, of uh, shrew verses like this that either preach patience or basically um, gloat, like <laughs> in contempt at the poor person who's got himself a shrew. But it's a common it's a common theme. This has no text, but it's sort of irresistible. This is a classic um, battle over the breaches, uh, where you can see the wife is trying to cudgel her husband with a ladle, and the husband is trying to cudgel his wife with a stick. You can see this anticipates a kind of Punch and Judy tradition. This is a series of plates that come later. This is, this is early 18th century stuff. These are at the V&A, but I've found collections like these all over the place. Um, almost every ceramic museum in the UK has at least one set. Um, and as you can see, right, uh, it's, a similar, uh, it's a similar deal to the comfort dish. What is a merry man? Let him do what he can to entertain his guests with wine and merry jests. But if his wife do frown, all merriment goes down. Um, and then cups um, and plates work on the same principle, although this one that I've uh, provided for you, I feel is sort of quite piquant. I am earth. It is most true, disdain me not, for so are you. This is a memento mori conceit, right? Remember that you're merely ashes and dust yourself. But there's a weird way in which the cup has a voice, right? It speaks as a me. It speaks, the, it speaks in the first person back to the user. And so the force of its messaging seems to me to take on a different kind of life, right, as a result. This is a particular favorite of mine. This is an ale cup made in the shape of a boot which seemed like a double win for me, given the role of boots in the play, um, and also uh, the centrality of, of, of cups. And inscribed on it is, oh, my head, which I suppose is to say that if you drink all the alcohol you can fit in the boot, you're going to have a sore head. Um, this is an inscribed sideboard or dresser. And, um, and here I've started offering from Cupid's Posies. This is one of many collection of posies. Um, rhymes that are offered in the period and places there, um, they are destined for inscription um, in print compilations. So you can buy books in the period that suggest what you should inscribe on objects in your home. Um, and some of the verses um, are, uh, are, about, are heartwarming and some of them are about shrews. Um, so that's a cap. I highlight this one because it's cabinet related and thus sort of pleasantly related to the, um, the dresser. Here's some shrew messaging that comes up in this other collection of posies, right? Um, this, and I'm going quickly here, but you can see, um, wouldst tame thy wife, first tame her tongue, who thus his wife comes or shall overcome. And another one, to curb the courage and wives uh, tongue keep under, may well be called Hercules, 13th wonder. Um, again, this is messaging that is, um, that's, that's advertised to the public as a thing that you might want to write on a drawer, on a, on a dresser, and the inside of a glove, um, on your wall, uh, above your hearth, inside a ring. Um, so rings are full of posies in the period. In fact, ring posies, those are collocated terms that you'll find a lot um, in Ebo. This is one of dozens that they have at the VNA. Um, right, which says, uh, accept this gift of honest love, which never could, uh, which never could nor can remove. Again, I'm interested in the agency that seems to be sparking through these objects, right? Um, 
This uh, goes to show that even foodstuffs have inscriptions written upon them, right? This is a German biscuit mold. It's earlier than, than the true period, but this stuff doesn't survive in great quantities. Um, and so the fact that there's a German instance of this to me seems quite encouraging. This is, again, uh, a, a household fracas sort of situation where he's complaining about pain in his heart, and she's complaining about his unfaithfulness. These are all different places that are listed in a book of posies um, for publishing these kinds of lines, right? On a handkerchief, on a pair of gloves, in bracelets, on a gentlewoman's lute, which seems quite apropos in the context of Taming of the Shrew, where a lute gets broken over um, a suitor's head, uh, and uh, on a silver bodkin, which is a dagger. So I raise all of this by way of saying the domestic space that Taming of the Shrew is, uh, is sort of imagining for us, right, is setting up for us, um, is a space that is environed with a lot of cultural messaging built into it. The objects that it circulates in front of the audience, while they would not be legible, most people sitting in the theater can't get close enough to those objects to read anything that's written on a small object like a cup uh, or a pitcher or a trencher, they would imaginatively expect those spaces to be screens onto which cultural messaging is written. They would also know the kind of messaging, the kind of home-born hearth wisdom that would show up in those contexts. This is not unlike much more rarefied spaces. This is the coffered ceiling of the Bodleian Library, which is famously inscribed with books. These, which I particularly like, um, are tapestries that were um, commissioned by Bess of Hardwick at Hardwick Hall. Her entire great gallery in the second floor of her home is an orchestrated space to make the Queen of England, Elizabeth, feel less famous and wealthy, um, which is arguably true, uh, than Bess of Hardwick. Um, in fact, if you saw the most recent uh, Mary Queen of Scots um, Queen Elizabeth movie, it was largely set in Hardwick Hall. Sadly, Elizabeth never actually visited Hardwick, probably because she knew it was waiting for her. But these are all allegorical female figures with their names uh, inscribed above them. In fact, the entire, the, the entire home, which was built out of effectively a divorce settlement, um, is, is women-centric, gynocentric only. There are barely any men represented at all. It's all female figures, wisdom figures, allegories of virtue. Um, and they're all sort of orchestrating this very sort of fancy relation to the space. So we see this in, in high cultural environments, but what I'm trying to point out is the degree to which a, a fairly humble domestic play is encoded everywhere with a similar kind of forceful messaging. Um, Juliet Fleming has a name for this kind of writing, this non-paper-based or non-print-based writing. She calls it cultural graphology. And in her first book in, um, in 1999, she wrote on sort of early modern graffiti, which is what I'm um, raising here. Graffiti is another place where lots of home-born wisdoms actually um, are written in the period, and it's another form of writing that's very badly preserved. And so I'm trying to sort of offer here, this is a 19th century iconography of, um, of Greek culture. And one of the things we know, of course, about the ways in which we preserve the Greeks is that what looks white, right, and pristine here, of course, was not. It was painted over, was messaged over, right? And so um, what I'm trying to do is sort of bring to life the fact that all of these properties that are, all these props, right, all these hand props that are brought up through the play um, are in fact written over um, and codified uh, with messaging that represents to me a really important sector of what Margaret Cohen calls the great unread, right? So for a lot of people who study digital corpora, 
what they're interested in is not rereading works they've already read, but understand to understand more broadly what the literary output of a culture is. What I'm trying to do with this Shrew project then is to say, well, if we take into account all of the stuffs that it's circulating and all of the messages that would have been enshrined on those stuffs, there's a whole pile of text there that we haven't noticed, that we haven't heralded, that's doing quite a lot of work. So what does that, so what, right? Part three, this is, I'm coming very close to my end, um, or hopefully not my end, the presentation's end. Um, so, so what? What do we do with this information if we rethink somewhat um, the way in which a play like Taming, and I would claim there are lots of other wife-taming plays that belong to the genre, but I'm not even sure that the genre deserves to be simply dramatic, right? It's clearly a ballad form, it's clearly a broadsheet form, um, and it's clearly uh, a form for boot cups. Um, so, uh, so what happens when we take into account that form of the great unread? Um, and how does it change some of our assumptions about uh, literature and cultural <laughs> output or literary tradition? Um, right, so inscriptional and functional verse, I think, is a good language for talking about the kind of messaging that I'm talking about. This is Malcolm Jones' phrase. Um, and one of the conclusions I drew from this, and this is small, but I found really interesting, is that when you start chasing down this iconography on these slogans, what you find out is how closely affined something like a bed warming pan is to the illustration on the front of an anonymous dramatic quarto, right? These are the same figure. They're making the same joke on the lack of body that nobody has. Um, this quarto is actually a very old play. It was published in 1606, but we know that it was in performance in the 1580s. Um, it's quite an anarchic little piece of clowning. And so is the bed warmer, as it happens, right? It's its its, its own iteration of that same spirit. Um, a similar thing is happening here. This is a painting over the top of a, a fireplace or mantles. It's just painting, plaster painting directly on the walls. This is another thing that's exceedingly poorly preserved about the living environment of middle-class homes, the middling sort in early modern England, is that their, their walls were everywhere painted, not in a fine, you know, uh, da Vinci kind of way, but rather, or Michelangelo kind of way, but rather with these kind of humble, woodcut-looking images with lots of folk wisdom attached. So this is one of the few cases in which that has been preserved. This is called The Four Sexual Ages of Man. Um, you can sort of see in the middle, the, the image, the second from the left. Thus do I while I may. Um, thus did I when I might, right? Um, and he's copying a feel. I don't have a better phrase for that. Um, this is a representation of the seven ages of man that shows up in, a, in what is, in fact, a, an early um, children's educational book by Comenius. But it's obviously also hailing what we wrote, what we, I think, all recognize <coughs> as the seven ages of man speech in Shakespeare, right? So the lines between these various genres are not very strongly drawn. This is another instance that I really like, another unearthed piece of not very fancy, not very refined um, mural painting where the woman on the far left, who is an allegory of taste, is also a stand-in for Mall cut purse, who is a known personage and who had a play written about her um, in, uh, in 1611. And you can see the, the similarities, right? They're both smoking a pipe, they have the feathered hat, um, the points on the woman's cuffs make her kind of masculine in the, in the far left picture. So that's one source of affinity, right? This, this breaking down of generic distinctions between literature and objects, literature and, um, and cartoons basically hand-painted onto walls. This is another feature that I found incredibly compelling, which is that uh, David Caston, who's a professor of Shakespeare at Yale now, he was 
professor, he was my professor uh, at Columbia when I was a graduate student, um, in this Festschrift book, he has a, a book that he describes from his own private collection that's essentially uh, a book of, of homilies, a book of sort of sermonizing extracts from the Bible that had built into it an early modern bookmark that was made out of a shrew skin. So it's a bringing together of this sort of sermonizing tradition and the concept of the shrew, right? And the concept of, um, of the scald and a, in a really material way. Um, so that was a sort of, uh, that was one sort of research opportunity. Research opportunity number two seems to me that in this period, we understand the Renaissance within the kind of aesthetic mo movement of the 16th and 17th century is moving towards an aesthetics of realism, right? And so we understand this is the, the great grappling moment for, um, for perspective uh, in England. Um, England is not a painterly culture at this moment because of its religious history, right? There's a, the iconoclasm of the first waves of Protestantism mean that we don't have quite such a rich art tradition. We usually look to the continent for great painterly um, expressions of the Renaissance, but uh, there are, and I should say also this image that I'm showing that is so curious is from France, um, but there, there still is plenty of iconography, including this, this sort of uh, not very fancy mural painting that shows up on walls, and a lot of it has nothing whatsoever to do with the aesthetics of realism. A lot of it, in fact, is wildly um, what I would call sort of surrealizing. And it seems to me that there's a lot more meaning attached to the surrealistic representation of everyday objects if you understand them to be encoded with all of this cultural <laughs> enforcement, right? All of this cultural um, freight. This is uh, Arthur Boldo's work, right? Which, you which I think many of you might recognize. He's the painter who makes faces out of fruit. Um, it's a wildly innovative and interesting technique. But it seems to me much more um, interesting as a pattern of representation uh, when we understand, when you can break down all of those objects, all of those fruits into discrete symbolic meanings. This, um, which is a Bruegel uh, painting of the land of cocaine, a, a utopia, gives you these little proverbial illustrations, right? Egg with knife, um, pig with uh, knife um, running through his skin. These are clearly not realistic representations, but they are spins on proverbs, right? They are speaking back to this proverbial tradition. So that was the second point. Um, the uh, the non-realistic or exaggerated representation um, of these objects in this period. Then there's the what I would call the, the outright breaking of these objects, right? Which happens within the play um, and beyond it. I ask here, and this is to me a really compelling question as somebody who's a theater person, what does it mean to call for props to be thrown? One of the principles, um, one of the primary truths of early modern drama is, um, at least when you think of Shakespeare at the Globe, we think of a playwright whose production values were, um, it, to the degree that they rested in any design area, they rested in the area of costume, where fancy costumes could be acquired secondhand from the aristocrats who were patrons of the major theater companies. But in terms of setting and props, we've always understood this to be a minimalist uh, representational environment, right? Where uh, work done in, uh, in showing things was often done simultaneously in explaining them because that representational work simply wasn't happening. There's no prop shop, there's no props mistress, there's no prop closet so far as we know. And the same objects that are used backstage to drink out of are used on stage to drink out of, right? There's no epistemological distinction. But this play and the plays like it that ask for these objects to be hoisted up, shown, thought about, 
um, investigated in terms of their messaging, um, and thrown seem to me invitations to think differently about the force of those props, about the decisions made around them, about their breakability, about the degree to which they're trashed. The amount of objects that get trashed in Taming of the Shrew is pretty shocking when you think of having to actually pay to replace that stuff, and it was artisanally made in the period. You couldn't go to Target and buy it. Um, and so uh, it seems to me that cost... Um, that sense of, of confronting and combating these objects is quite an interesting one. And then slightly more metaphorically, but not that much more metaphorically, I mean, Shakespeare is known as the sort of progenitor of the malapropism, right? Dogberry, for instance, um, but other characters I've offered you, Lancelot Gobo um, from Merchant of Venice, are famous for messing up common sayings. And we take this as a sign of their less educated status. But what if they're actually just breaking these phrases that have such incredibly, that are so incredibly powerful, right, as uh, expressions of, of, a, of a dominant culture? Um, and again, um, this is a question that seems to me to take on more substance. When objects start to warn against their own destruction and abandonment, these are two objects, one is a pitcher, one is a cup, that say, break me not, pray in your haste. Um, for I do none will give distaste. And then, of course, the, the, the picture also says, obey the king. Um, and this is an object that I photographed at the Bodleian that I found really kind of amazing, right? Um, to potter's clay, thou takes me to be, remember uh, uh, thine mortality, right? It's another one of these, mort these uh, memento mori objects that sort of says, if you think I'm disposable, so are you. Um, and so what we are currently doing in this project is in order to think through the affordances of what these objects might do in, in play, in performance, we're asking the VNA to offer us um, rich image files and maybe even STL files, object files, so that we can print out some of the objects that I've shown you and put them in play in, um, in acting classes within um, theater programs, but also among professional actors. Um, to see what it is like to work with objects that may or may, they may or may not choose to put inscriptions on them. I mean, one of the benefits of using these files is that you can distort and rework them in any way that you see what you see fit. You can surrealize them to your own content. But to us, it seems pretty interesting to think about this both as a way of, of moving towards original practices, maybe, thinking about what those objects would have been like in production, but also thinking about this sort of um, creative destruction's critical power, right? The kind of making and remaking that can happen in the world of the play by virtue of introducing these objects and smashing them about. And I took my cue in part from, um, this is a remediation of one of the objects at the Abu Dhabi Louvre. For those of you who've been there, you may have seen this. It's one of the, I think, more um, engaging features of the museum is that it extends its offerings to a broader public, a more diverse public, by saying, um, look, touch the various substances, the, the materials that these objects are made from, um, feel in your hand the texture of a facsimile of this object, which obviously is priceless and you otherwise would not be able to handle. Um, and these are just 3D printed objects. They're polymer printed objects. And so, uh, so we're thinking in the same, along the same lines. So, and here I'm very close to the end. Um, sorry the slide is so dark, but um, if any of you have been to the Art Institute of Chicago, you may know of the Thorn Rooms, which is a series of diorama rooms that are representations of aesthetic movements and architecture from the Renaissance to the present. The very first room is a Tudor Hall, um, and you can kind of see it here. And so when we first started doing this work, when graduate students and I, um, we thought, oh, what we're doing is sort of dioramizing the play, right? Every scene becomes its own environment. We're trying to put things in their place and figure out 
how visible they are, what kind of work they might be doing. Um, but as we moved along, I think we began to think, sorry, we began to think increasingly that this isn't just a diorama, it's an escape room, right? And that the play is, in fact, um, you know, in active, it's a sort of active impressional environment where the degree to which the characters and or the actors playing the characters accept the shaping force of these objects upon them, I think is very much in flux. I think this play has always been a very problematic play for its messaging about power and hierarchy. But I think looking at the way the objects carry some of the weight um, in that messaging makes it much more open, much more open-ended and much more open to um, combative engagement than, uh, than I think may have seemed previously the case. And so coming back to Shake um, and the agitations um, of drama, right, um, I come back to two quotations, one of, one of Petruchio's and one of Catherine's, um, that use the quelling of shaking, right, as an opportunity to sort of blow past what I think is quite discomforting in the play. And my, um, my sense, and we're at the early days of this project, is to say, well, that remains to be seen. All right, that's my presentation. I'm very happy to take questions. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.